0: I was still a kid Childish, childish This all freaks me out a bit childish. Hey, after you drop off the kids or put them to bed, turn on Childish with real-life friends and podcasting virtuosos Greg Fitzsimmons and Allison Rosen Laugh about the struggles and joys of parenthood Grow closer to your children Learn something useful or not Maybe feel less alone And maybe even put the spark back into your love life Childish is for people who are parents or had parents. If you had no parents, maybe check out WTF with Mark Maron. Subscribe
1: to Childish. New episodes coming soon wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Childish, oh shit. Last time I checked, I was still a kid. Childish,
1: childish. This all freaks me out a bit. Childish, oh shit. How can I parent when I'm still a kid? Childish, oh
2: shit. Who the hell is
1: Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend. I am sitting here in our temporary studios with comedian and writer Andy Haynes. Uh, he has written for a number of television shows. And also he has... Uh, he's not just a TV writer. He's a writer-writer. Mm-hmm. And we will get into that. Um, hello. Welcome.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: So I met you years ago when we did Doug Loves Movies. Yes. And I remember talking to you then... Or at least thinking thinking it, I don't know, that like, oh, I should have you on the podcast. And then years passed. And then I recently read a really well done essay that you wrote about working as a mover in New York mm-hmm. or having worked. Are you still working as a mover?
2: I do pick up shifts, yeah.
1: It was really, um, it was very poetic and soulful and also interesting. Those are big compliments.
2: Thank you. I really, that's... Really gracious. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: I I have so many questions about that. But then just now, I was reading another piece. Um, the, I think it's one that you wrote very recently about. I posted
2: it today, yeah.
1: Okay. Um, that is quite recent then. Mm-hmm. So it's fresh. It's fresh. A fresh, fresh, hot dispatch from Andy Haynes. Yeah. About, um, getting off of antidepressants
2: and getting back on them okay. eventually. That's the secret. That's the, the, <laughs> spoiler. the plot twist.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about that first. How are you doing?
2: I'm good. Yeah. I, um, so I, I, uh, I had a bunch of good stuff happen for me last year. Uh, I'd moved back to New York, um, with just, I, I'd ran out of, I didn't know what to do in LA anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I'd gotten really broke and I kept on getting jobs on shows that were fun with great people, but not very artistically uh, fulfilling like what Uh, I wrote for like a lot of variety shows like ridiculousness and dude perfect and this one crash leads which is like ridiculousness for children Um, and then I wrote for a couple sitcoms just one uh, that I was staffed on and I helped with a couple pilots but none of them were like the kind of shows that I would ever watch Mm -hmm. what was the sitcom It was called ground floor Oh, yeah. It was great. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was like such a great experience. But um, it wasn't like, you know, I... I, And at the time, I didn't know how hard it was to get a writing job. So Mm -hmm. I was kind of a real douchebag. (laughs) Um, I also wasn't sober. I was just like a very avowed stoner. Um, But yeah, I didn't didn't know what to do. Stand-up wasn't really happening. I wasn't doing anything stand-up-wise other than going up a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I kind of was going to go home i was gonna go back to seattle and kind of like reset uh, not give up but just like take some time off and then um i was visiting new york and a friend uh oh wait i got my stories <laughs> collided i was talking about the moving thing now uh the, the good things happened for me in the fall i totally started telling the wrong story that's okay um, well
1: i want to know both so if you whichever if you since you already started the move, moving story yeah i say go for that one Cause I want to know about all the, cause you mentioned that like I can a bunch actually of
2: make them string together. Wonderful. That's what I'll do. Okay. I, so I moved back to New York, basically long story short, I was visiting a friend. I had no intention of ever living in New York again, unless like SNL hired me, right. you know, or some great show out there that I could live exactly like I wanted. Mm-hmm. But then the idea of moving to Seattle versus living in a very small apartment in New York was a lot more appealing. So moving right. to New York. Right. And I got a job in a moving company and I moved for like four months. The, the same moving company I'd worked at before I'd moved to LA. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, when
1: you were... Were you living in New York before
2: you came to LA? Yeah, I lived LA? in New York okay. like oh nine to 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I um, I totally never ever thought that I would have to do that again. Like I was... You know, I used to have a, like I say in the essay, I used to have a parking spot on the Warner Brothers lot. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, I thought I was done with that part of my life, but I kind of just was like, I'm going to just be grateful for this job and, um, did a bunch of stand up, got in at the cellar, got a job at a, uh, bleacher report. I was mm-hmm. writing a cartoon oh, cool. there. And then, um,
1: and for any listeners who don't know the comedy cellar is, uh, how would, how would you describe it?
2: I mean, I'm not separate of me working there it's the best comedy club in the world it's the blue note jazz mm-hmm. you know it's just it, the, it's the village vanguard it's right. the it is where the best comics are and um it's it's just i think it's the epicenter of stand up comedy mm-hmm. um and i never you know i kind of had given up on that part of my dreams cuz i moved to new york originally after watching the documentary uh uh comedian mm-hmm. which is kind of all about the seller And, um, yeah, I got this job. And so anyways, this is where I'm going to blend them together. Uh, I was like, here's
1: where we watch an artist at work.
2: Yeah. This is storytelling masterclass. (laughs) 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 You stop. If you start telling the wrong story, just tell the next story at the end of where you would. Uh, but no, I, and so I had this really cool girlfriend and I was like, man, I'm doing great. I'm also sober. So I like, Mm -hmm. um, I run like a program, like a 12-step program. And I was doing a pretty good job of that. So I was just like, I'm going to get off these antidepressants. Was
1: she cool? Like, like wow, what a cool chick? Or...
2: Aesthetically. Okay. She was like an architect. And she was from Australia. And she wore like cool clothes. I bet. I bet we... she
1: carried a super cool satchel of some sort. Yeah.
2: And she like, you know, we would go to like dinners in the Lower East Side with artists. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just like... Is um, she tall no
1: okay that's okay
2: um but it was she just, gives
1: off a tall vibe in this story she,
2: she felt tall <laughs>
1: <laughs> i feel like she was tall. yeah she
2: emasculated me a lot so okay. it that's, felt yeah. it felt very tall um i had a a boss one time on a tv show i said i was six two and he said you don't feel six <laughs> two um yeah uh no but so i was just like i was doing great i was like man and so i decided that i'd been on these antidepressants for i guess kind of about four years and i was like i should try to get off of them and i didn't really talk to anybody about them i knew how to wean off antidepressants Mm -hmm. and i just i did it and um the first time i'd done it i did it once before it hadn't been a big deal it was like i kind of had a headache i'd had some there's this thing called brain zaps that you get which feels like um literally just like you got zapped at the base of your brain stem but not
1: painful right
2: it feels like an electric shock
1: oh that does sound painful
2: it's more jarring than Mm -hmm. painful um so i was like it'll be fine and then it was awful it was like disoriented kind of vertigo feelings headaches uh sensitivity to light and sound fatigue like it it felt like the hangover minus like the smell of alcohol and Mm. nausea but i was nauseous Mm -hmm. um and i i tried to it was just horrible
1: emotionally how was it or did did it have an emotional component?
2: It was just so taxing. Mm-hmm. It was so physically taxing and kind of mentally taxing too. It was just a. It was just like a really insidious, gross feeling, and um, things kind of slowly started to unravel, starting with the relationship because she wasn't really like. She's kind of a pragmatic person, and she was kind of like, "Hey, we've been dating like three months. Like, I didn't want to like sign up for your like withdrawal. withdrawal yeah. Um. And so, yeah, I just kind of, uh, and then also there were some like other things with like work, um, which wasn't necessarily related to, uh, the medicine, but it was, um, what do you call that? Like, um, inflated by the withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And then, um, my therapist got really weird. Like I was seeing a therapist at the time and she basically like, I had to fire her. She became like kind of unprofessional. What happened? she started And
1: by the way, I don't know why I experienced so much glee with asking that question. I mean, it's
2: exciting. Like... I guess it,
1: it's there's something titillating about it, but there shouldn't be.
2: Yeah, it was weird. It was like I was in this really like anxious kind of uncomfortable state. This is probably 6 weeks into the mm. withdrawal, and she started getting really mean. Mm. And she started telling me that I was going to relapse and that I needed to like go to like a, like a rehab. It was just like really weird and That stuff would kind of be okay if it was a suggestion, but she started to be mean about stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I was like, Hey, I'm like, I feel like shit. Like I want to get back on my antidepressants. And she's like, she'd be like, we'll talk about that next week. And I was like, I'm not (laughs) what? Like, and so eventually she was like yelling at me, like, like yelling, Mm -hmm. like kind of being cruel. And so I just, I fired her, but this all kind of Added up, and then I yeah. just got back on the meds, and everything's been pretty good since then.
0: I have a question. Yes, if I may, please, Tony uh, Thaxton, hi,
1: producer. Hello, and welcome.
0: Uh, yeah, because I I have some experience with this as well mm-hmm. uh, of trying to get off and then back on antidepressants. Did I you, do too, by the way. Yeah oh, did cool. you mm-hmm. did you stop doing them only because you felt like things were good, or did you have the kind of uh, like numb to everything feeling it i wouldn't say it was numb like when i look back on it now i probably
2: thought it was numb but like in a i i have a a funny comedian friend named dan saint germain i'm sure you guys know of him Mm -hmm. um and i always described it as i didn't feel like i had access to all my emotions like i like i had really good things happen and i'd be like wow that is amazing but i'd kind of just be like cool you know like i didn't you know when i got past to the cellar i was like so excited but it wasn't like glee you know yeah. and then um i'd had a friend die um like a year previous now i mean if you are paying attention to the comedy community uh, a lot of friends have died but i had a non comedian friend die and i couldn't get to like a i couldn't cry i couldn't like access that and so um it was kind of i wanted to feel a little bit more emotion, you know, Mm -hmm. like I wanted to, to get back to those, to those like more important emotions, I guess is what I would describe them.
1: Before you went on the drugs, um, did you have access to those emotions?
2: I don't know. I I, I feel like I've always been kind of a a pretty flat. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think I probably had more access to them. But I don't know if they were good. What Dan said was, I don't know if we uh, get to feel all these things. (laughs) Like we're the kind of people that we shouldn't necessarily like expect to be allowed to feel the way (laughs) we think we should feel, because it's just like um, I'm not. I'm not like bipolar or manic. I've never had a, a. you know delusions of grandeur. I've mm-hmm. never had a hallucination, but I am somebody that can get like way up or way down, mm-hmm. and I can be very anxious. And so um, I remember those feelings. But um, yeah, it it was it was just I kind of wanted to see what it was like, and then I don't know I, if I probably would have done it better. I could have seen what it was like, but it was just this perfect storm of. Probably not getting off the drugs Mm -hmm. right. And then also all these life things happening. It was like I got back. That was like I I started weaning off like mid-November. And then by week six, like girlfriend was kind of on the way out. Found out I didn't get my job back. And then also um, therapist stuff happened. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I can't do this. Like I can't be also adjusting to these meds. Right. You know.
1: Um, My experience wait I wanna know what what was your experience tony
0: uh it was it was kind of a combination of that's why I asked because I felt like things were going pretty well, but then on on top of that, it was kind of like the numbness, like I didn't necessarily feel sad or very happy most of the time. It was just kind of like a lot Steady. of nothing, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and so I was like I feel like I just wanna feel things. And so again I had I had gone off for a little bit before and I was like I'm going to try again. I know I'm supposed to talk to somebody but I was just like I'm just going to do this, wean myself off and then uh yeah, uh this was actually kind of recent that things got like pretty bad though and I had to like very quickly like oh, I have to do something about this now mm-hmm. cuz it got yeah. it instead of instead of the numbness it was uh only feeling the bad and not feeling any of the good. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of where I was at.
2: I mean, I was like, I had this whole trip land out here. I was here in, um, the first, like maybe the first two weeks of December and I was just like sick the whole time. Like I just felt like, like an emotional slash physical hangover and I was just like, this wasn't supposed to be like this. And you know, but, uh, it, it's fine. I learned the lesson and it's like, it's not a bad feeling. Like I, I guess I can't get super emotional when sad things happen, but I also don't like, I'm not super depressed and I'm right. not like super anxious. I know.
1: guess I'm just wondering is your, the sort of blunting of emotions you're talking about, is that for sure the antidepressants or is... Because you're saying that you've always been kind of flat.
2: I think it might be just me. Yeah, mm. I don't know. I, I mean, I know a lot of people complain about it. But right. one thing is, is um, like, I don't have any sexual side effects of antidepressants, which I think is, like, a pretty big deal for a lot of people. Yeah, that's
1: a reason a lot of people get off of them.
2: Yeah, and I, I've i never had a problem with that. So I guess, like... I the numbness, like I, I don't experience the negative side effects of uh, that a lot of other people do. So I don't know if it is the antidepressants. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, I feel pretty good.
1: good. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, when you went off, how long had you been off before you got back on this, this most recent
0: time? Uh, I'm not totally sure. Probably maybe ballpark, like six months. Okay. Yeah. So, cause with me,
1: um, I was on Lexapro and I am on Lexapro currently and I uh, knew I was going to try to get pregnant and like everyone around me was like, you know, you don't have to go off. <laughs> and I'm mm-hmm. like, I like thought it was kind of nuts that I was talking about because I went on, I had postpartum depression after my first son was born and I had never been on any antidepressant or anything like that. I had done like talk therapy for years and mm-hmm. I always felt like that was fine Um and then it just got pretty bad after Elliot was born like a few months later I had a, a traumatic birth um and a bunch of stuff and so anyway, I went on lexapro. It was really helping, and I would find that at whatever dose I was on like it helped, and then all of a sudden I would like some things would you know it just wouldn't wouldn't like give me total relief and so then I would go up a little bit in the dose and then and that would and then it would be good for a while, and then it would kind of keep happening. And then I was on. Um, I don't know if it was actually a big dose or just like an average dose or whatever. But I started feeling really tired and kind of numb, and I was like, "This is just too much." So I started like stepping down under the care of a psychiatrist. And then when I was going to get pregnant with my second kid, I they everyone was saying it's fine to stay on it, mm-hmm. but I felt like I'm you know I'm no longer dealing with the stuff that that brought me in here. Like I'm through that postpartum depression. I'm fine. I'm doing really well. And I know that that's like textbook, like we're all saying, like that's a reason that people get off of them because the drugs make you think everything's okay. And you're like, I don't need it anymore. And Mm -hmm. I I realized that I was doing that, but I was like, I just want to see how, see who I am without them. Like maybe I don't need them anymore. And also I would rather not be on a drug if I'm going to be pregnant. So I think I was on like fifth, I think I, I decided to start the weeding off when I was on 15 and I got to 10 and I was like, God, I'm really stable on 10, but I want to keep, and I keep kept going down by like 2.5 milligrams. And when I got to, I was just on 2.5 milligrams and which is a tiny dose. Um, and at that point I started feeling like nervousness and anxiety and, I didn't know, is this the withdrawal that I'm feeling or is this who I am without it? But it's so unpleasant that I don't even want to, I don't want to continue this. So then I I went back up to five and that's what I was on for most of the pregnancy. Um, So I didn't like really give it a chance. I don't, like I said, that's what I think is so insidious about trying to get off antidepressants Mm -hmm. is when you start experiencing things, you don't know, is this who you are without it? Or is this just your body adjusting to not having the drugs
2: yeah i i don't i don't know either like and also like i don't know if i'll ever feel normal without them right i I did feel pretty normal when i first got off them but i realized after the fact that um i'd always been on a half dose Mm -hmm. i'd never gone up to the actual full dose you know how they introduce you with a half dose right i'd never gone up because i had kind of a shady psych the first time Mm -hmm. And she didn't like follow up to make me go to the full dose. Um, but I, I, it was such a miserable experience that I don't know if I would ever try it again unless yeah. unless they stopped working, right? Um, which happens, I guess. But it's like, I also don't know, like, can you go back, you know, like, because does your brain adjust to the metabolism of serotonin? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know.
1: Like, can you be cured, you mean?
2: Not cured, but can you go back to where you were before you took the antidepressants
1: or like, right what what would the alternative be, or are you forever
2: like that you know how you said you could only feel the bad mm-hmm. like i don't you know like I guess it would be like if you had some kind of assistance with a physical handicap, like you're probably going to have some atrophy. Oh, I see. So like, will you ever be able to... Is it like a
1: crutch for your brain?
2: Yeah. Or do you change the chemistry of it actually? Right. Because I mean, it's years, you know?
1: Yeah. These are all good questions.
2: But I don't know. And I also like, this is the biggest thing for me is like, do the drugs work? Yes. So, why am I trying to like, mm-hmm. I'm not like a monk. I don't give a shit. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I'm not like, tra- like, if a doctor was like, you know, you'll probably lose, lose two years of your life because I'd be, like, they sound like a shitty two years. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: But I mean, to be fair to yourself, I think that that's a legitimate reason to want to try something is to want. To recognize that you were having trouble mourning your friend, yeah, and to to feel like maybe they're actually holding you back from something,
2: yeah, yeah, and I I guess also like there was a little bit of me that was like, would I be like a better comic Mm -hmm. because I maybe I'd be more like explosive and more creative, right? Um, and I don't think it matters.
1: Yeah. Well, so do you know Greg Fitzsimmons? I do. I host another podcast with him called Childish. And he uh, wanted to get off of his antidepressants for a similar reason. Like he felt like it was kind of taking away his his comedic fastball, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't – he tried – oh my God, I'm forgetting the name of it. It's something that my psychiatrist is so like religious about. Is it herbal? No, it's – TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like extremely expensive. Um, it's, yeah, it's, so it's where like every day for a number of weeks, they uh, magnetically stimulate a part of your brain.
2: Yeah, I think Neil Brennan did this yes. too. Yes,
1: yes. Um, and it's for people who are drug resistant. So you have to, you've like tried a bunch of different antidepressants and they don't work. So then, and, and he swears by it. Um, I don't, I don't, it's not for me. I have, to say, I have decided I've yeah.
0: decided.
1: <laughs> um but anyway, yeah, but I don't think that Greg ever got off of his antidepressants entirely. Uh-huh. So um anyway. Okay. So we need to know more about Andy Haynes, but it looks like you're about to say something. No no. Okay. Not about to say something. <laughs> I
2: maybe I was about to say something. Maybe it was the pills, you know. And who knows? Oh, you know what I wish actually? Uh I wish because I'm sober, I would like to do it in a um, professional setting, but I am intrigued. I have friends that uh got off antidepressants and they started using psilocybin mushrooms. Mm. And in Europe they've done tests with a psilocybin based antidepressant. And I, I mean I would rather put something natural into my brain than a chemical. But right. um again, I don't they're working just fine. <laughs> <you know?
1: laughs> uh also people swear by ketamine. Yeah. Like in a doctor's office. Mm-hmm. And that's I've never tried any of those drugs, but that sounds fun to me.
2: I'm sure it is. I mean, people love ketamine yeah. on a dance floor. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: Why not in a clinical setting where someone is watching over you the entire time? Yeah. Um Okay, where are you from? Seattle. Seattle. And what what uh what was your childhood like? It
2: was good uh it was a little i'm finding out now that it was traumatic you know uh but i didn't really like it. you know when you look at the grand scheme of things it was very idyllic mm-hmm. uh my parents got divorced when i was 5 but i stayed in my house until my mom sold it 2 years ago um i grew up in this neighborhood called Queen Anne and it's pretty well to do we didn't live in one of the big you know multi-million-dollar homes but we lived near them and it was safe and it was seattle so it was like liberal and um yeah i i, I didn't want for anything that's mm. for sure but my mom had some mental health issues and my dad moved to the east coast so it was kind of just the two of us do you have siblings i have one sister but she emancipated herself when we were like fifth when she was 15 and i was 12 mm-hmm. how and, come cuz my mom was kind of a tyrant in a, you know, in a very passive aggressive, Mm. uh, kind of emotional saboteur, Mm -hmm. emotional manipulator. I I don't think she was conscious of it, but, um, and my sister also, I don't know. She, I I think she needed to leave. I think she, she kind of, my sister is a very sensitive, grounded, soft person now, but at this point of her life, she was not, she was like a what you would assume would be like a crust punk. She was an anarchist <laughs> and she rode trains and stuff across the U S and did a bunch of like queer uh anarchist activism stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was, you know, she she wasn't completely gone from our lives. It's not like she didn't see us. She just didn't want to live under my mother's roof. And we also fostered. We had a lot of foster kids in and out. And the last one um, we didn't, adopt immediately Uh, we probably had 20 kids over the course of 10 years Um, the last one Liza stayed with us for maybe two years and then she went back to her mom who we had a relationship with Mm -hmm. because it's been two years of she was allowed to visit occasionally or we would do like holiday dinners together but her mom could never get her act together and so eventually her mom went back to jail and we got her as guardians and then now she, she just got her own apartment but she's 24 23 or 24 and she um just graduated uh graduate school oh wow yeah and i mean it's so impressive because she's like you know she grew up in like trailers and motels and lived in cars and has gone through a ton of trauma um and then i have a stepbrother who he's like a pretty boring dude (laughs) works in it in pennsylvania and He's he's amazingly the most boring gay person I've ever met. It's like a feat. Because half my family is like, you know, like urban gay. You know, like uh, my uncle is like a queen. He's like an old, like sassy, like, you know, funny guy. And then my sister's like kind of like a butch lesbian. Mm-hmm. And then my brother is just works in IT, owns a townhouse, uh, loves the gym and, like a, <laughs> and a chain restaurant. Like mm-hmm. he can get down at a P.F. Chang's. There's no pretension. I've never met a less judgmental gay man, you know, it's, it's pretty wonderful. Does he
1: have any strong feelings about pop culture or anything?
2: Whatever everybody else likes, probably, you know, <laughs> he's like, I, he, he loves his mom, my stepmom, who I love too. But mm-hmm. like, I'm not, I didn't have the kind of childhood where I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see my family and just hang <laughs> out with them. Like, I'm like, I love to see them for four hours and then I go and I see friends or I go to an AA meeting or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then I come back and we do breakfast and then I go read in my room. You know, he will just stay right there. They'll cook, they'll go run errands. They'll, uh, he loves his mom, but he would, uh, he's, he's gone to a few Celine Dion concerts with her. Yeah. It
1: sounds like he lives such an untortured experience a life
2: yeah i mean that whole side of my family i mean i would just love it like to get joy out of the amazing race you know just (laughs) to be like ah the amazing race is on we love hyundai's you know just no judgment like because like you know they'll get groceries and they'll accrue 50 plastic bags and I'll just be sitting there, like pulling my hair out, thinking about the plastic bags. And they're just like, "Do you want to make rice oroni tonight?" And you're just like, "Oh man, how beautiful it would be to be simple. <laughs> I'd take that pill for sure—the right. one that just made me like just benign, accepting." <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. Have you always? Um... I'm trying to articulate what what the question is. Have you always not been that way?
2: Yeah, I've always. One thing that I do kind of appreciate about, I appreciate so many things. My mother is um, really amazing in a lot of ways, like very good caregiver, things like that. But she was so exhausted. She worked about 60 hours a week as a nurse. And she was so exhausted that she never wanted to cook. She's an amazing cook. but So we would go out almost every night. And also, she didn't have time to do the cultural things that she wanted to do. So, Seattle's just like a, you know, it rains 300 days a year there. So, you do a lot of theater, movies, great restaurants. Mm, Indoor stuff. Yeah. So, I got exposed to all of it.
1: Wait. Do you do a lot of indoor stuff? Because I feel like everyone in Seattle, like... I don't owns a Subaru and goes hiking and has a big dog. And- I'm
2: talking. My family's lesbians from Seattle, so you got just that's a quintuple Subaru <laughs> situation. Right. Uh,
1: it seems like a real outdoorsy place. Like a real active is. outdoorsy it, place. It is
2: the, Seattle. We we do not stop for weather other than snow. For some reason, everybody has a Subaru and they cannot deal with snow at all. Like the city shuts down. But. um Yeah. I mean, I grew up, uh, I tried to be a professional skier right outside, right out of high school, skied like a hundred days a year. Mm Um, I, uh, running soccer, all that stuff. Like it doesn't really deter us. It's pretty awful weather too. Right. Um, it's very depressing. I mean, people in Seattle have these things. I'm sure you've heard of them. Light boxes.
1: Oh, that's t- t- if you have seasonal affective disorder. Yeah.
2: So they just like turn on this box that's just basically like warm light and they just sit in front of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: like a science fiction uh, short story. It's very Blade runner Yes. And also, isn't there something called the Seattle Freeze, which is like people... Oh, are you not familiar with that term? Oh, the cold people? Yeah, that people are just yes. like kind of unfriendly.
2: It's... I think people don't realize what I think it is is I think it's a Scandinavian thing Mm. because we're mainly descended from Scandinavians it's the very the white people there are Scandinavian Um, and that's what I can tell is that like they're not like I've been to you know People are very kind in Sweden and Iceland when I was there, but they weren't like gregarious. Mm -hmm. They didn't like see me on the street and be like, hello, let me take you to my home. You know, like (laughs) it was very like, hi, it's freezing and dark and now we will go right. You know, it's like (laughs) that kind of, and they're all fishermen too. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of a, Seattle's weird. It's stoic. Yeah, very stoic. Seattle's weird because I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those cities like Denver or boise where it's on the edge of wilderness Mm -hmm. so it's like you know you see people there and you're like oh you just got here from the woods (laughs) you're a woodsman
1: uh so you were i think i cut you off though because you were saying that you would go to restaurants or yeah i just was exposed
2: to like and that was like kind of how my family communicated love was food Mm -hmm. like my my uncle who has he has no emotional like uh, versatility. He can't say like, I love you or hug you deeply. That's the, his own problem. But um, that, how him and my mom talk is they're like, Oh, have you been to the fair wind? And they're like, I hear it's wonderful. And my mom's like, when I went there, the chef came out and said he loved my brooch. <laughs> and that's just how they talk. And then they just, com- they try to jockey who's been to the newest, coolest mm-hmm. restaurant or play or whatever, you know? So I got exposed to that. And um, you, you're from SoCal. Uh, yes. My uncle, though, was like a, a huge comedic influence on me because he was like the master ceremonies at holiday dinners. Mm-hmm. And he would tell these they're they're very Midwestern, but they're called Oli and Lena jokes.
1: Oh, I don't think I know them.
2: They're Midwestern. Um, I think Swedish immigrants or something. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Scandinavians. And it's just it's just dirty jokes told through Oli and Lena uh who are like a older scandinavian couple
1: do you have a favorite one
2: i can't really remember them i think a lot of it is um you know comparing uh the smell of a woman's private parts to fish probably <laughs> you know things like that yes
1: uh there's that see you do- my, you dodged me trying to make you tell a joke and now i was about to just walk on the landmine myself by telling a joke there's some joke it's from like It's probably from truly tasteless jokes, which was formative for me growing Uh up. But it's—I don't know the whole thing, but it's like a blind guy, you know, walks by a a fishmonger's Mm -hmm. like wares, and it's like, oh, hello, ladies. That's the (laughs) punchline. Yeah,
2: yeah. (laughs) Without
1: without the what leads up to it, I feel it lacks something. But
2: (laughs) we got there, and we didn't have to belabor it. You know, that's
1: right. This would be a terrible time to go into an ad for underwear, so I'm going to allow more conversation (laughs) to take place.
2: Unless it's that kind that has the magnets in it or whatever no
1: right? it's it's i mean it's got it doesn't need that it's got more <laughs> i'm talking about me certainly you know me yeah i love them they're super comfortable they're very well made they use coveted micro modal fabric which is three times softer than cotton wow. when i grew up we just had cotton fabric has come so far you guys now there's like the softest most Amazingly soft, I know i 'm just saying soft over and over again, but i 'm also like rubbing my hands together as if i 'm feeling it right now it 's very uh it's very it's it left a real impression on me um, it's fabric that feels like heaven against your skin, and they have all different kinds of styles. Uh, women can choose from four different cuts, all of which are available from classic colors to adventurous prints um, and also they have uh, underwear for men and women and I believe my husband is currently wearing his mees boxers, which have um, which have lips all over them. Oh, he likes fun underwear. Yeah. Yeah. He's got lips. He's got some St. Patrick's day underwear. He's got, we have matching underwear sometimes. So cute. It's, yeah. It's a real, we don't always wear it at the same time though. So maybe it's, we have the potential to be cute, but we're individuals. That's how we do things.
2: Kids. I mean, you can't, you don't have, we can't to do all of it. Underwear.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, as I was saying, if you're looking to help your man replenish his top drawer, MeUndies offers the new boxer brief with Fly. It's the same great cut as boxer brief, but now with the added option for guys who prefer to go through the gate versus over the fence. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) But why stop at Undies? MeUndies also offers matching lounge pants, bralettes, and onesies as well. Yes, they make onesies. They're incredible. Uh, They have a great offer for my listeners. For any first-time purchasers, when you uh, get any MeUndies, you get 15% off and free shipping. To get your 15% off your first pair, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash Allison. That's com slash Allison. Okay, Andy. Mm-hmm. What was the experience like of uh of of taking in foster kids and like how, what age were they and what age were you when this started?
2: Um I was probably 10 or 11. It was uh, 11. I was 6th grade and um it was pretty intense at first. I mean it was like cuz what we did is we didn't sign up for well, I guess I don't know what we signed up for at the time we were close friends with the attorney general of the state and she was personally reaching out because Mm. she was having so many kids not getting placed. So she was reaching out to families. And, um, so my mom agreed to do it. And I think our first kid was a baby that, um, his mom had been a crack addict, something like that. And so it was intense, you know, Mm. it was like these babies. Sometimes they were like weaning off of drugs. Um, almost all of them had some kind of, behavioral issue just because of the tumult that they'd been in. Right. Um, Except man, we had this adorable baby girl named Mercedes who was like, just, she was, um, she, she looked like a little troll doll. She was like the (laughs) cutest little girl in the world. And we actually lost contact with her. Um, we, we, we kept in touch with most of the kids Mm -hmm. because usually there was like a happy ending. Either they went back to a, a, a parent that got their act together or they got adopted by somebody who, you know, was a good parent mm-hmm. um but it was intense, and I think it it definitely like probably messed me up a little bit because you you know like I'm sure you've heard or at least read uh about attachment, mm-hmm. you know, like there was these kids, and I didn't get a lot of affection from my mother, and then there would be a baby and then take care of a baby for a couple months, and no, like nobody told me how to do this stuff, I just like liked the baby and then the baby would be gone one day mm-hmm. and you'd be like what you know like and I was 12
1: right were you doing a lot of the caretaking
2: i was helping a lot mm-hmm. a lot of changing diapers a lot of feeding um we didn't have a ton of babies uh, we we had a couple they were they were more around 2 years old one mm-hmm. to 2 years old i would say sometimes we got a couple months old and those would usually be very short just cuz it's such a laborious task to take care of a infant mm-hmm. Um, but my mom is a pediatrics nurse, so sometimes it was perfect. Um, but yeah, I mean, I changed thousands and thousands of diapers and made formula and fed them Do you babies. want to stick around? Sure, yeah. <laughs>
1: because uh, there's a lot of diapers that need changing around here. Do Not guys, right now, though. Do you
2: guys do diaper service?
1: What is that? Oh, is that cloth diapers? Yeah. No, I'm sorry.
2: No, it's fine. I mean, it's so crazy like to get somebody to deliver and pick up and you have to hang on to them and yeah we didn't if it makes you feel any better we didn't do cloth. it does
1: make me feel better my mom used cloth with me so do i have like an offset yeah i think that um wait i have a question though with a cloth diaper service what do you do like where does the poo go
2: i think you just Ball it all up. And oh, you just leave it in there? You don't, I, I mean, I no think if there's off? like a turd, <laughs> you put that in the toilet. Yeah. But I think if it's just a, you know, baby poop, you just right. kind of whoop and then you put it in a pail and then a guy comes and he takes it and he gives you a new pile. But I will say this this is an interesting story. My sister has a lot of friends who are real out there, mm-hmm. you know, from her anarchy days. And there's these two friends of hers that are uh, marijuana farmers in Humboldt and they're real the real woods people. They you sound know? like it, yeah. Um and they came to her wedding and they brought their baby and the baby just didn't have anything on lower half.
1: Wait, how old was this baby?
2: S- 5 6 months. I don't okay. know, it was a baby.
1: Baby baby. Got and it. And
2: they would just be like, "Oh." and hold it out and it would just pee.
1: At her wedding. Wow.
2: I mean, it's Seattle. It's pretty I, it, was yeah, okay. it was an outdoor <laughs> wedding. Yeah. Okay. Outdoor wedding. Uh, and, you know, they live in Humboldt County in the woods, so it's not hard for them, but they just didn't... this just the baby stripping, you hold the baby <laughs> over like a, a, pl- a pot, you know, and then right. a flower pot. Yeah. And sure. then um, I didn't see any live pooping, but I'm sure it happened.
1: But it, ha- it has yeah. to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've heard of people who... Like there's some... It's some toilet training philosophy where they you just don't put diapers on your kids, but I feel like that's probably not what they were doing.
2: Yeah. It, it seemed pretty fly by night. <laughs> <laughs> right. There might not
1: have been a plan there. What was the oldest kid that you guys took in?
2: Robbie. Robbie came to my house when I was a senior in high school and he was a year or two younger than me. Mm-hmm. His dad was a, like a PTSD non vet kind of guy and had a drinking problem. And, Uh, so Robbie, Robbie was from our neighborhood. It was, I didn't know him, but it was bizarre because, you know, it was just a kid from the neighborhood that came and lived with us. And he was, um, he was real interesting. He probably had some spectrum kind of stuff. I mean, he was just like a character. He lived with my mom for a couple of years after I went to college too. Mm -hmm. He actually, two stories about Robbie. Short one first is, uh, one time I saw Robbie jogging and, um, it was at night. And he was jogging. I was like, oh, look at Robbie jogging, getting in shape. And he was also smoking a cigarette while (laughs) he was jogging. (laughs) And then another time, um, I moved to Lake Tahoe right after high school. (laughs) And I took night classes and I worked at a resort because I wanted to be a professional skier. I was not that good, um, but I wanted it. But Robbie um, did not want to go to high school anymore and live it. so he came down and um at first nobody would rent us a house because we were 18 <laughs> yeah and they were like yeah you know we're not gonna rent you a house down i mean it was also hard it's like a resort town um so we were living in this motel on the california nevada border next to this city called incline village which is like just basically like a shitty small casino mm-hmm. town and uh one night the um the cops just kick in the door and they're like yeah, Robert, like you got to go. Like you're 17, your parents have reported you missing. We didn't realize that he was on the lam, mm-hmm. but uh <laughs> so they took Robbie to Reno and they put him on a plane and um when he got off the plane, somebody was supposed to meet him, you know? And uh nobody met him and Robbie saw his chance and he just went straight back to the Greyhound station and he was back in Tahoe in like a day. Wow. Yeah, he was a real character. So, that's Robert.
1: You mentioned feeling like there wasn't a lot of affection Mm -hmm. or potentially attention from your mom or was it more, there wasn't a lot of affection.
2: It was a little bit of, it's hard to describe. My mom is, is a character and she's fun and she can be very loving, but she can also be kind of hot, cold in a way that is hard for a kid to deal with. Mm -hmm. And she dealt, she got postpartum depression after I was born and she never really recovered from it Mm. in a, I, I, you know, she's a functioning member of society. She, you know, she's a good, a good lady, but our connection, I don't think I've recovered from that. And my dad and her split up soon after. So it was, it just compounded. I don't think she, she, she never dated really again. And I don't think she ever actively tried to fix the problem. So there was just a lot of like that hanging in the air Mm -hmm. and then her kind of being like God damn it, I'm 40 and I have these two kids and I um, don't feel sexy anymore and the guy that I thought I was going to live with for the rest of my life is gone and remarried and and she wasn't good about keeping that stuff to herself. Mm-hmm. So and
1: she s- would say it in front of you or like tell other people in in your earshot?
2: Not necessarily that, but like you just didn't feel like you were like super welcome, mm-hmm. you know, and there was a lot of like, come on, we got to go, I'm late to work and, you know... Um, but there was also moments of like real sweetness, but I, uh, you know, now that I'm like an adult that's gone through some shit, it's like, she never really got like, you know, her family, there was issues there. Uh, she probably had some treatment that she should have sought out and I'm not like totally letting her off the hook, but, um, you know, people are sick and there's not always the resources. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think that like people talked about trauma like that in the eighties, so, um, but yeah, I mean, I, it, like I can specifically remember, and this isn't like that bad of a thing, but I remember being a kid and being like, oh, I want to, I was watching little man Tate, the Jodie Foster, Harry <laughs> Connick junior vehicle. Um, and, uh, I was like, oh, I want to be a genius. I was eight and he was eight. And I was like, mm-hmm. I want to be a genius. And my mom was just like, you're not a genius. And then we just moved on.
1: <laughs> That's pretty bad. And I
2: was just like, oh, okay. I guess I'm not a genius. <laughs> But it was, I would say my mom was gruff. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of gruffness.
1: Yeah. So did it bother you that she was bringing these other children into the home and caring for them when there was maybe a lot? No. It didn't.
2: I never remember feeling jealousy. And also it's, my mom was so sweet to those kids. I mean, there was also times where she was late and had to take them to daycare and was frazzled and... You know, she could be nasty, but I remember her being very good to all those mm-hmm. kids and being... I think that that's her wheelhouse, is those, like, those babies. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Although, not necessarily the two of right. us. Right.
1: Right. That's why I'm I'm wondering... I
2: don't think I was conscious of it. I never knew... I mean, I should have never... Nobody... I have a joke about it. It's like, wh- why did anybody ever tell me about the postpartum depression? Because she, she couldn't really hold me when she was... Mm-hmm. When I was an infant, because she was so depressed. And, like... Why did anybody tell me that? I didn't need to know that. Like, yeah. I was, I mean, I probably would have still felt the void, but like, I didn't need right. to know the specifics.
1: Had she had a traumatic birth?
2: I don't think so. I think maybe, I think I was unplanned. And then I think also it was probably like that. I think it was probably like her body changed and mm. her relationship with my father changed and all of a sudden it wasn't she had one kid she had two kids I'm not trying to scare you here I, know I just <laughs> had a kid but um you know I think it's probably like that ennui that comes with like getting into your late 30s and just being like all right this yeah. is life you know mhm um but no Yeah, I yeah I don't I don't ever remember feeling like that towards the kids. I think I was probably a dick to them occasionally because I was thirteen and fourteen, and you know, Mm there was times like that. I remember. So go ahead. Oh no, I just was. You know, I remember like inappropriate games where it was like you would have like I was like fifteen, and you would try to get one of the kids to like run around the yard and hit them with a frisbee or something. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) jerk older brothers, right? You know,
1: right. So it's only in. In retrospect and through therapy, I imagine yeah. that you sort of have more realizations about your childhood.
2: Yeah. I mean, there was other traumatic stuff. And I, and I'm, I'm my mom was not completely unaffectionate um, uh, or cruel Mm -hmm. or neglectful but she was hot and cold in a way that was pretty jarring and um some other traumatic stuff happened where it was just like you know it was chaos Mm -hmm. it was just chaos and it was like i tried to deny it always because i went to school in you know the hood and i've been all over the world i've seen the third world and i was always like well it wasn't that Mm -hmm. you know like she wasn't a drug addict nobody was in jail
1: and you had these examples right in in your home of kids who had it way worse yeah
2: yeah um but then you know now i'm an adult and like anytime i fall in love with somebody it's completely unhealthy you know like i'll meet a woman who's uh cold and emotionally unavailable and i'll be like mom you know and i can't separate from them and i just need them you know and so after you know the 15th one of those i'm kind of like okay, I got to do some work around this because mm-hmm. it's like, I, you know, I'm 36. It's time to tackle that. You know?
1: Right. So have you ever had what strikes you as a healthy relationship? Yeah.
2: Yeah, for sure. But I think um, I was either too immature at the time to let it sustain or it was healthy, but we weren't in love, mm-hmm. you know?
1: Right. Like, uh In order for you to feel that like excitement and passion, is it usually from meeting someone who's withholding?
2: Or just exciting, you know, hot, cold, alcoholic. uh...
1: Short, but reads tall yes
2: exactly uh <laughs> you know exciting i think a lot of times i fall in love with people aesthetically and i don't just mean beauty like this last girl it was just like she had her own apartment there was art there was architecture it was like you know like if i felt like i was in like an ad for npr mm-hmm. you know like i was like look at me being a new yorker with all this <laughs> fancy stuff uh but then you know when it looked to like the fine print it was like she wasn't nice <laughs> you know <laughs> like so um but yeah i've had healthy relationships and i've i've had a lot of postpartum healthy relationships postpartum not being natal part of i mean like i'm friends with almost all of my long-term exes mm-hmm. and we've been able to go like wow like we really care about each other that didn't work out but now you know i had lunch with my ex before my ex yesterday mm-hmm. and i had dinner with my ex-wife last week you know So
1: I want to ask you about your, your, uh, Marriage in a moment, but first, I need to tell you guys (laughs) about Robinhood. It's an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy to understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections such as 100 most popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of Allison Rosen's new Best Friend a free stock like Apple, Ford or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at allison.robinhood.com. That's allison a l i s o dot n robinhood.com. Dot so you were married to Alice Wetterland. I was, who has been on this podcast. Great. Um, what? Well, uh, how long were you guys married?
2: We were technically married for two years. We had a big ceremony after we'd gotten courthouse married, mm-hmm. and that post that was about seven months.
1: Right. What happened, if I may ask?
2: Um, long story short, uh, we didn't really we were just kind of not ready. And um, I think it worked at first because we met, we were excited. Um, And then as soon as the excitement started to wane, then we moved in, you know, maybe six months into Mm. the relationship. And then it was like, oh, okay, now we're doing this. And then like engagement started being on this. And then we got engaged and then like, okay, now we're going to like have a wedding someday. Okay. So cool. Like we have this to look forward to. And now we're going to move to LA. Like everything was like, we had these little milestones that kept us together um but i think in in reality we just really were good friends and she was super, we just enjoyed each other's company but i don't think there was a lot of the like stardust there you know right. what i mean um and so when it was like married and living with each other it was like oh so so now what <laughs> you know like what do we what do you do with this mm-hmm. so yeah
1: was the div- cuz the people I know that have gotten divorced, um always it always seems very traumatic. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking more of like my dad had been married. I'm I'm from his round two mm-hmm. and I believe he was like went through hell after his first divorce. But it seems like it shouldn't have to be so it shouldn't have to be more than just a breakup. What was it like for you? I
2: think I think it was, when I look back on it now, I think it was more traumatic than I appreciated at the time. I think I have a a tendency to be flippant about bigger deals than, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I probably have ruined a few relationships by being like, all right, I guess let's break up. And they were like, I just wanted to have a talk, Mm -hmm. you know, because I'm just like, all right, let's, you know, I I don't want this to be weird. (laughs) Um, But I, I think it was traumatic. I. I only think because we had built a life together mm-hmm. if if we would have done things the other way, it would have really just been a three year relationship, you know, but we had lived with each other for two years and moved and just spent all this money on this huge wedding, you mm-hmm. know, and so like we were kind of sewn together in this like you know like practical sense, but I think realistically the trauma was more like being like. Uh like we're grownups. Fuck. Like, this is like a big deal. You know, like we shouldn't, we should actually feel more seriously about this. And like, there's ramifications, you know? Mm-hmm. But, um, I think probably about a year after we separated, we were back to being able to hang out and kind of chill. And then maybe a year after that we were friendly and we, now I can call her, you know, mm-hmm. and be like, Hey, I'm having a rough day. And she's like, all right, tell me about it. So, Yeah.
1: When did you get into comedy? 22, uh,
2: 2004. Uh, yeah. December of 2004 was right around, uh, Bush won the second time. And I tried to do a bunch of activism around that. Although I wasn't good at it. you know, I'd like spray paint signs in my already liberal college town. (laughs) Um, and, uh, but I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to, to cause havoc, you know, Mm -hmm. I wanted to wreak havoc and I wanted to do funny stuff. But, and then I watched a Bill Hicks DVD and I was like, Oh, he's talking about a rock. He's talking about Bush. I'm going to do that. And so I went to an open mic and everybody sucked. And I was like, well, I can suck. Mm -hmm. So that's, I literally did it on like, a. I went to college 90 miles North of Seattle. I drove down every Monday night to do the, every Sunday night I do the, the open mic, and then Monday night I do it too, and I drive up after that. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've never, I think, I, I think I never have taken more than two weeks off since then. Wow. so fourteen years, yeah.
1: Had you thought of doing it before you just before that documentary?
2: I think people had told me you should do it, and other people had told me I should do improv, mm-hmm. but it didn't seem realistic to me. Like I think about this now, like I loved. Saturday Night Live. When I was a kid, I fucking loved it, and all these other people are like, "I knew I wanted to write for Saturday Night Live when I was 12 years old." I literally didn't realize you could do comedy until that moment when I watched that Bill Hicks DVD. It was like, "Oh, I could do comedy!" Like, it, I literally didn't realize mm-hmm. until that moment that like you could pursue something like comedy right. and make it a job. So.
1: And before that was your, your ambition to be a professional skier?
2: Briefly. One time I was in Lake Tahoe and we had built a jump over a two lane highway and I was standing at the top of the, of the run into the jump Mm -hmm. and with two other better skiers and they were like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I'm going to try to make it over the road you know, cause it's concrete and you would get very hurt if you landed on it Right. and they were going to do like flips. And I realized in that instance, like, Oh, I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not, if they're going to flip over a highway, like I'm not going there. And I also just didn't, they treated it like a sport. Most people who are professional athletes really have to train and stretch and PT and all those things. And I just did it mm-hmm. and I would, I'd done it since I was three. So I was good at it, but I wasn't. Like I'm a big person and to be really good at those high impact sports, you usually have to be kind of a, a light or really strong person and be very disciplined. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you watch like, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is getting raspy. Um, if you watch that free solo movie where the guy climbs the dome, uh, El Capitan without ropes, like those are the kind of people that can do those sports. Like those kind of people that it is their entire life. They're basically monastic with their approach to the sport, and I just kind of liked skiing and getting drunk in parking lots. Um, but uh, no, I I had wanted to be a writer and I had wanted to be a academic. Mm-hmm. I was going to go to um, graduate school for... I was either going to try to go to Yale Divinity to study theology or I was going to go to the American University of Beirut to study Sufism. Well, Arabic first and then maybe Sufism, which is a... Um, branch of islam like Mm a it's basically like a what do you call that um i don't know that like uh it sufism is like uh it's it's what do you call that i can't think of it it's it's like the i'm trying to think of a non-offensive word it's the new agey islam it's like you know like magical realism islam i don't know how you would describe it like whirling dervishes do you know what those are
1: uh i know the term but i don't know
2: they're those people in turkey where they spin and they have these cloaks that like they like float out and Mm -hmm. it's like a thing to see Mm -hmm. but they're sufis that's like part of their religious belief is like the spinning it's like a monastic approach Um, now
1: i'm wondering what is the offensive term for new Age islam i
2: was gonna be like it's you know the the silly stuff you know okay. like you know like like kabbalah in, right in judaism okay like most so mystical mystical that's the word i was looking oh, for yeah it's mystical <laughs> islam you know the kind of stuff where you're like most jews are like yeah some people do kabbalah we don't do kabbalah right you know um so i wanted to study that though and mm-hmm. i wanted to go to like the middle east and um i don't know why i i, I also really wanted to make movies but i knew that most of the best film schools didn't take undergrad film people. Mm-hmm. And so I was just like, Oh, I'll go study these other things. And then I'll come back with these resources and be a filmmaker.
1: What did you major in, in college?
2: Socio-religious studies. Mm-hmm. So I studied, um, sectarian, m- mainly sectarian issues. So Northern Ireland, Iraq, Sri Lanka, Central America, which is kind of a different sectarianism because it's really Protestants, uh, evangelicals and Catholics and kind of the, the mixing of those. And then also some indigenous religions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did some media kind of stuff in there. You know, I went to one of those schools where you can design your own major. Did you, go, where'd you go? It's called, um, uh, Fairhaven. It's what evergreen is based off of.
1: Oh, it's funny. I've heard of evergreen. Evergreen where would, Matt Groening went. I've, uh, I also went to a small liberal arts college, so I feel like I've heard of them all. But I am not familiar with Fairhaven.
2: Yeah, it was kind of the test model in the 60s. It's very, I mean, there was, I think a guy majored in walking. <laughs> <laughs>
1: did you like it?
2: Uh, Did I? Yeah. I'm not that. I, I, I was too cynical and mm-hmm. I was too much of a smart ass. I mean, people were so sincere and kind and it was, you know, like every single person in the school is like bringing um you know jars with their lunch in it because they'd never use like a non-recyclable product <laughs> and there was a lot of smells like body odor and mm. a lot it of sounds armpit like the, hair the
1: crunchiest of all the
2: yeah very cr- i mean literally the building was covered in moss I mean, it was like <laughs> it was very very crunchy and you know like these terms that have become pretty mainstream like ableism and Mm. ageism like we were talking about that stuff there in 2000 Mm -hmm. and you know very ahead of the time
1: why did you choose it
2: i think it was interesting to me at the time like there was part of me it it was a very northwestern thing to go to a small college town and and to kind of be near a ski resort Mm -hmm. and kind of to be in like a place where people people In the Northwest, there's a lot of people that are from a city and they'll kind of like abscond to these like regional areas and they'll get into like, you know, like I had a lot of friends that went up to the San Juan Islands and they just became like kayak instructors and outdoor education and educators and um, things that are very slow lives, but good lives. Mm -hmm. But just like, you know, most of my friends from high school do not do like they would never understand hollywood right you know they're like what like i don't want to do that like i have a couple friends that live on like islands without power and you know they like have fish baskets where they like catch crabs and you know it's a different speed Mm -hmm. but i was still kind of like attracted to it because it is a very beautiful life i mean it's just hard and serene and right i'm impatient (laughs) yeah
1: yeah i uh I have a journalism background and I worked in magazines and there's this girl that occasionally I'm like, whatever happened to her? Um, she also worked in media in New York and, and her, um, boyfriend was like a writer and I think still is a writer at the New York Times and just this media couple. And I think she's on some Island working at a bar or something. It's like, it's like just the opposite of Uh the, the New York life.
2: I mean, it's definitely like, there's an island called Orcas Island. Randomly Gene Hackman lives there. <laughs> um it's not a show business island. Right. Um but Gene Hackman does live there. Uh but I I constantly fantasize about just saying goodbye to everything and mm-hmm. just being like, I'll work at the, the there's like a little co op there. You know that grocery store that's around here that's like the um the like kind of seventh day adventist hippy dippy grocery store? It's like fruit of life or something.
1: Is it in Burbank?
2: Yeah, it's like right around here.
1: I don't I don't know it. It could have closed.
2: Um, it's anyways. It's like one of those. Like it's not like a Whole Foods, you right. know. It's it's like you can buy things to make honey and you know like those kind of things. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, like where everything has a light misting of dust on it. Is it that kind of place?
2: Yeah, and where like it doesn't. Most of the food they prepare is like a joke. You know? <laughs> You're like, oh, bulger pancakes. Yeah, you know, like that <laughs> kind of stuff. Got it. Or like the supplements they are like this, you know, we're ear candling this week, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, they have one of those grocery stores up there. And I had this dream of like, I'm going to just work at the grocery store. I'll live in like a $200 a month cabin and write books. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was very attractive to me in a in a leave society kind of way.
1: Right. Um, going back to you wanting to be a writer and wanting to be an academic, I, I noticed early on in this podcast, you do have a very... Uh, amazing vocabulary and i consider myself this is where this is where it's a compliment that turns into like a narcissistic comment (laughs) i consider myself someone who has a big vocabulary um but i feel like yours might even be bigger than mine oh thank you did you read a lot as a young person where do you think that comes from
2: um i think i have a a photographic memory i think i have a, a good memory and i think that that that's like one thing like i'm i'm just good at remembering details not specifically if you date me you'll be annoyed with how much i forget <laughs> um but uh yeah like i i think i just um i'm able to like take a word and when i um look it up cuz i do that where i read and if i don't know a word i look it up and i've always done that mm-hmm. i think when I started preparing for the SATs, I started in that practice. And I, I, if I just look it up, I don't know. I remember it.
1: Do you have any words that, okay, let me, the reason I'm about to ask that question is because there's one word that I can never remember the definition of. And I look it up and it goes away and I look it up and it goes away. And it's the word is insouciant.
2: Ooh, insouciant. I don't know it. Is it, <sighs> i forget is it i n s maybe it's
1: insouciant (laughs) i n uh i n s o O u U c i a n t i think and i forget the definition every time i look it up i have like a general feeling about what it means it's something it's not positive
0: showing a casual lack of concern
2: yeah i was gonna say it had something to do with sweetness Cause Sue's S O U that like root of that word is, is also the Latin root of sugar. Mm -hmm. So,
1: you know, I, I think I'm, I think I'm honing in on why I can't remember the definition because I don't even know what to show a casual, what is it to show a casual lack of concern?
0: Yeah. Or indifferent.
1: Oh, indifferent. Okay. It's just like the whole It's a very vague. I'm gonna word. I'm gonna use it
2: remember it because we got to the definition right i looked up a word the other day from a norman mailer book and i can't remember what the definition is now effulgence effulgence F- e-f-f-u-l-g-e-n-c-e
1: what does it mean oh you don't know i forgot effulgence let's guess what it means if, if, I. Think can it you can't even means, use it in a sentence
2: no i think it means a I, I i'm at, at a loss
1: like it feels like you're overflowing that's with what yeah
2: that's what I, I think it has something like an abundance
1: right
0: radiant splendor yeah it's pretty close
1: it's interesting because if fulgent is not a particularly <clears throat> beautiful sounding word no but radiant splendor
2: it's like a practical radiance
1: <laughs> yeah
0: radiant splendor sounds like a band also
2: it does mm-hmm. it sounds like a college jam band <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right like uh do you remember a band called The Samples? Yeah. I think they were from Colorado maybe. They were very they were fairly noodly.
2: I yeah. downgraded, I was
1: going to say they were very noodly and then I downgraded it cuz now I'm not I'm I I Did you go to UC Boulder? No. Um I went to Pomona College, but I went through my Samples widespread panic fish phase. Oh yeah, of course. Phase. You had yeah. to.
2: Pomona was a pretty jammy campus. Yeah. I almost it went was. to Pitzer. Really? Yeah. I, that
1: is that is like the crunchier Pomona. Mhm.
2: That's the, I think Pitzer is actually kind of the Fairhaven College of the uh, Claremont colleges. I'm,
1: sh- it, I'm sure it is. It's,
2: I remember j- like going to the dorms and just seeing people smoking weed openly. And I was mm. like, "What? wait, what? And they're like, yeah, they don't care. And I was like, I got to go to school here. And my dad <laughs> was like, we're not going to pay for you to go to that school. So I didn't go.
1: But instead they sent you to Fairhaven, which I imagine was
2: dirt cheap state school it was like a college within a state school got it and you know those schools are expensive and i was out of state and all that Mm -hmm. stuff so yeah
1: so you decide to go into comedy you start doing open mics then what
2: um that is i graduate august of 2005 um in my little college town i'm debating what to do and I go out to get ice cream one night and I'm in line for ice cream and I hear people running around the street going, I just saw Robin Williams. I just saw Robin Williams and I look in front of me and it's Robin Williams. Oh wow. And I go, Hey, uh I'm a huge fan. I don't mean to bother you, but what should I do? I'm a comic. And he goes, Move to San Francisco. And so I was like, All right, I'm gonna move to San Francisco. So once I packed all my things up from college, I drove down to San Francisco. I got a little vibe of the city i did a bunch of shows met people ali wong chris garcia um uh, who else did i meet alex cole um shang wang like all these people and um i was like i'm gonna go back to seattle i'll see you guys in a couple months this is so cool and i i mean still to this day i should have i loved san francisco i never got to live there um i'm gonna visit my dad first in dc and i went to dc and it was supposed to be like a three-week trip and um i stayed for two years What happened? I had a girlfriend in Seattle that was nuts and I didn't know how to break up with her. And all of a sudden I was on the other side of the country. And, um, I went to an open mic one night. It was like my third day in DC and my dad lives in the suburbs and I drove in and at this open mic was just this amazing group of comedians. Roy Scoville was there, Mm. uh, Ryan Connor, um, Seton Smith, like just it was so different than anything I'd been because D.C. is a very boring town in a lot of ways. It's very practical. It's government workers. It's nonprofits, colleges, and there was, like, most of the comics were between 25 and 30. They're very disciplined, and we all just wanted to do comedy, and it was, the audiences in D.C. are still to this day, like, one of the most amazing audiences because it brings together this weird cross-section of people from all over the United States and world, but they're not pretentious or that, you know, it's mm-hmm. Hollywood for ugly people. Right. <laughs> so it's just like, they're not there to be like, look at how cool I am working as the, um, you know, assistant to the government affairs <laughs> ma- magistrate or whatever right, it is. You right. know, they're just there. They got a college degree and they're pretty smart or they're local and they're pretty smart. You know, it just was like this perfect cross section. So it was a great place to learn. Um, came back to Seattle for a year in between that. And moving to New York, did New York for like three and a half years, moved out here, was here for six years, and then I've been to New York for a year.
1: And the plan when you guys moved out, when you and, and your wife at the time, or no, girlfriend at the time?
2: Uh, you and Alex We out. were you legally were married. married, but nobody knew.
1: Right. Oh, why did you why you keep it a secret? Because
2: we wanted that big wedding. Mm-hmm. And we were afraid if we told people, they'd be like, you're already married. <laughs> Especially our parents' money. You know? Right,
1: right. So the plan when you came out, was it to, to get into television?
2: I didn't necessarily I don't think I had a plan until very recently to be honest I'm 14 years into comedy and <laughs> I didn't realize that you had to kind of have an idea of what you wanted to do if you wanted it to happen so I mean I used to go into generals when I was like pretty new to comedy and they'd be like alright what do you want to do and I'd be like
1: anything that's same with me
2: yeah and they don't like that Mm-mm. they want you to be like I would like to be the next Bill Cosby
1: yeah they want you to have a proposal
2: Um, so I didn't really have a plan but um, I got, I was kind of working odd jobs around LA and then I got Conan and then I got a job on ridiculousness and then I got my half hour and then I got a sitcom writing job. And once I was in that world, I was like, Oh, this is, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I want to write and do up. Um, I haven't had a, as good of a job as that for a long time, but, uh, I love writing for TV and, um, I like doing standup. So I, I, I kind of found that plan. I would like it to eventually make my own things, but.
1: And when did you get sober?
2: Four and a half years ago.
1: I mean, sorry. When that, I got, was it in that?
2: I got sober my second season on ground floor uh, about a year after getting separated. Um, and I, I, I'd been not drinking since 2010. This is 2014. But I was smoking so much pot. It's so funny because it was like bas- I was on the Warner Brothers lot. And every morning I'd wake up and I'd be like, you know, I passed out with a joint in my hand and and I would get up and I would go, okay, um, I'll like hit this roach and then I'm not going to bring the weed to work. I'm just not going to smoke for the rest of the day. And then at lunch I would go buy weed and I was just smoking. If I didn't have to work, I was smoking all day long. And I just, it got to this point where like nothing was good. It was just always this flatness Mm -hmm. and even on the antidepressants, like I wouldn't get objectively depressed, but it was just, I was so high all the time. And I was like, this isn't how it's supposed to be mm-hmm. like you're not supposed, and nothing was happening really. Um, so I just went to a meeting and stopped smoking weed, and then I became an insane person because you do all the drugs so that you don't have to deal with all the chaos and the wreckage in your life. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, been sober for about four and a half years.
1: Had you quit drinking by yourself,
2: kind of? I mean. I got arrested like six times in my early 20s with drinking related stuff. Like I would just black out and like Mr. Magoo myself into the worst possible situation, you know. (laughs) Like what? Flipped a minivan going like 80 miles an hour in the mountains and I didn't have a seatbelt on and I woke up upside down and I crawled out of the car and hitchhiked to the store and bought beer. (laughs) You know, and got arrested arguing with the clerk at the store being like, I think I was yelling at him in Spanish and he was like, I don't speak Spanish and you cannot buy this beer. Um,
1: Because you were so drunk?
2: And also 19 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And... One time I got kicked out of a party A guy, for a good reason. A guy used the N-word in front of me, and I punched him, and they threw me out of the party. But they just happened to throw me out of a party on the top of a mountain because this was in Lake Tahoe. And so I was walking down the mountain. It's a resort community, so there's condos all around. And I was knocking on every door because I was like drunk and freezing Mm -hmm. and i walked into a construction site and i walked off like the third floor of the construction site in a blackout woke up in like a snow puff and the cops arrested me you know like but like constantly almost dying constantly like so it was pretty easy to be like there was never a doubt that you know after my third arrest i was like i probably shouldn't drink Mm -hmm. and then
1: but you continued drinking for three more arrests
2: yep Because I kept on having that thing of like, well, maybe I can keep it together this time. And then it would be okay for a couple months. Mm -hmm. And then I'd be like, all right, I can have a night off. And then that ended around 22. I stayed almost completely unblemished for two years. Probably smoked pot once in a while. And then I moved to D.C. and I started drinking again. And I never actually really had a big problem with drinking again. But occasionally it would rear its head. And right before I quit drinking, finally, it was... um, I was just having like a beer at night and it, it, it was just sad. You mm-hmm. know, I was just like, I'd have the beer and I'd be like, I'm kind of drunk. And then I'd go to bed or if I did, I could, I, I cannot do comedy with an ounce. I mean, I can't drink, but mm-hmm. when I tried to drink and do comedy, it just didn't work. It like threw the whole thing off. Mm-hmm. So quit drinking. And then I was not, I probably didn't smoke pot for like three months. And then I smoked pot one day. It was the best time of my life. And I was like, all right, I figured it out. I don't drink I smoke weed and then four years later I had to stop doing that
1: what was when you say it was the best day of your life like what what was so great about it, it
2: was like I was helping Scott Moran who's like a director out mm-hmm. here now um, I was helping him uh, paint a house we smoked some pot we just painted this person's apartment and it was like so fun just like painting and then that night we uh, had a show and I was just had the most fun being stoned on a show and it was just like this is this is how you do it, you know?
1: You did comedy stoned?
2: All the time after that, mm-hmm. yeah. And oh, I, yeah, if you did it for four years. And I've done it before. But I, no, I was stoned during my half hour. I was stoned during Conan. Like, I just was always high. I, wow. It was like, I, I was like, well, if I'm always doing it, uh, there's no reason not to do it yeah. for the special thing.
1: So you were able to... Because I'm the kind of... I have not gotten high in a really long time, but I'm the kind of person who, like, could... I. I remember in college getting high and then reading... I had homework to do and like reading the same paragraph over and over Mm -hmm. and over. Like I
2: cannot function if I'm stoned, but it sounds like you can quite well. I don't think I functioned that well. I just think it was, I did it so much. I mean, I think I was fairly functional, but I have ADD too. So it was like a bad, it was a bad, it was just still chaos, you Mm -hmm. know, just like wake up, get high, go running, half right, three jokes, realize that, I wanted something from Target. Go to Target. Spend two hundred and fifty dollars on things I didn't even plan. Go back home, clean the house, try to write the first paragraph of a story treatment. Get ready for the show. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just. It wasn't that dramatic. There'd be no like, uh, like you know, uh, Tuesday night movie about my battle with marijuana. But it was just chaos constantly.
1: Well, what would it? a day that you weren't stoned look like rare (laughs) (laughs) well right but i mean like what you're talking about going to target trying to write like that doesn't
2: now or back then
1: back then if you what was it holding you back from
2: um well i i think it was holding me back from concentrating and Mm -hmm. following through and being serious And also, I think the main thing was just, it was holding me back from dealing with all the things that made me kind of chaotic. And, you know, in a writer's room, like, those people are all family people. Those guys all have families and they all have um, shit going on. Mm -hmm. And so when a kid comes in and he's distracting and he's combative and he's silly, if it's not adding to the fun and it was they were just like what no like uh, we don't want to be here any later than we're, like at 6 p.m we have to drive to santa monica like stop fucking around and to, god bless him jeff astroff gave me a second season but that was this i got divorced the first season and the second season i got um sober so i mean to those guys they were like this kid this is just chaos you know and then i i've also fucked up opportunities like recently but it was like I really have to learn how to like you, you have to separate your art from a job. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you just have a job and you just have to be an employee. Um, And other times it's your art and you have to die for it. Right. And I had a hard time parsing that. And I also had a hard time being like, okay, well these, these people gave me this opportunity to make this thing, but like um, they're still the bosses Mm -hmm. and maybe, or, or maybe like they're going to give you notes and maybe they're right. Or maybe you just, have to do it and it sucks but you don't have to take it personally you mm-hmm. know lots of things like that do
1: you have a problem with authority
2: i have a problem with criticism i think and specifically personal yeah criticism there's mm-hmm. no, no caveat to it it like i've had people edit things before especially like partners because i've dated a lot of creatives and i i got viscerally angry just because i couldn't handle it and i think it has to come like if we want to circle back i think it has Mm -hmm. to come from that kid stuff where my mom would be like you know you're not a genius or Mm -hmm. like you're not this isn't good or whatever and i would just like internally i'd be like oh i'm so mad right now that you told me this story doesn't work you know right so right interesting have to learn a lot about that stuff
1: i feel like you might be a genius though We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Not that this is the ultimate arbiter of it, but did you do really well on the SATs?
2: I did well on some of them, on parts of them. Like I got a perfect score on the written, maybe one of them, one half of them. I did well on, but I also had ADD.
1: Did you get a perfect score on the verbal? Yeah, I think that's the one.
2: Yeah. And then, um, damn the math i uh I probably would have gotten a decent score but i um uh, I started thinking about skiing like <laughs> halfway through and then they were like uh time's up and I like had just filled out like half the questions mm-hmm. so you know my a d d was pretty bad too
1: but still, a perfect score on verbal is that's uh very impressive I, I think I think I, your mom's wrong about you
2: i I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> But um, no, I just think I had to, um, I don't think I'm necessarily – Like I, I'm probably on the spectrum. I think that's probably all it is. I think everybody is right. But like,
1: well, I think that's kind of the definition of spectrum. But I don't know. I don't know. Some like there are certain. I think spectrum has to do with an inability to connect to other people. Right. I probably I feel like I shouldn't be speaking about this if I don't really know.
0: Yeah, I don't know either. Honestly.
1: I think most people who are somewhere on the spectrum, it's like they have trouble connecting with other people.
2: I think that's something that I have trouble with, where it's like I can understand a theory Mm. or a historical movement Mm -hmm. or maybe even like a literary kind of like a style, Mm -hmm. but like I can't necessarily understand like... um, reading cues sometimes Mm. or being like this isn't that big of a deal or things like that or maybe like this project i'm working on that i can perfectly see it but maybe i'm not like a lot of times i don't know did you ever do stand-up
1: uh like for a tiny second
2: there was times where I would be like, this is hilarious to me. And then I would tell the joke to an audience and they would be like, what the fuck are you <laughs> talking about? And I think that's something I've had to learn how to do is like, oh, they don't know that I like I have to show them what I'm like that. I, the, the joke is like not obvious to them mm-hmm. as it is to me. So I have to communicate that to them. Right. And a lot of times that has professional like with writing things or. Um, with, um, meetings, things like that. I I think the, it's, it's weird. The essays have been the first time I've only written, I think I've written three or four of them now, but it's been the first time where I've been able to take an idea, like a nucleus of an idea and really build it out. And I think like kind of cover exactly what I'm trying to talk Mm -hmm. about and even linearly. Right. So that's kind of been the most rewarding thing for me lately to write.
1: Have you thought about writing a book?
2: I'd like to yeah I don't know what I'd write about mm-hmm. but maybe um, some essays that kind of like add up to a memoir right because I think there is like a weird um, there's a weird space right now for like I'm a guy and I play sports and I exercise but I'm also like kind of sad and you know it's like you're either um, John Hodgman or you're Joe Rogan <laughs> Right? That's like the two guys that we let you be.
1: <laughs> That's so true. Yes.
2: So I'm trying to, I think there's a space for that maybe.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. We have a segment on this show called How Dare You, where uh, I ask guests, I think I put a K in the word guest, I think I said guests, I ask guests <laughs> <laughs> uh, personal questions, and before I start, I like to ask the following, on a scale of one to ten one being you're very private. Ten being you're an open book. Where do you place yourself? Ten. I suspected it was going to be high. I like when I'm right about my suspicion about someone. Um, okay. We have a little jingle.
2: happy be on the show. Ask to you want to know. And I'll be sure to... But how dare you? <laughs>
1: okay. Uh, have you ever had sex in public?
2: Um, Not in like the presence of other people necessarily but uh yes like in a campground on mm. a picnic table okay
1: um that's the first time i've asked that one it's a relatively new segment i'm realizing i don't have a follow up for that one <laughs> but at least at least we know
2: well i just gave you the follow up i didn't even let you ask it yeah. i just told you the I details mean, i mean no
1: i guess the follow up is like how was it
2: <laughs> Dr- <laughs> drunken <laughs> okay yeah
1: uh if there had been people potentially around would you have not
2: I have no uh I have no interest in like sex club uh public sex like group sex like it I mean I'd love to have a threesome with like you know two idiots but uh, <laughs> 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 but I don't want I'm not like a kinky guy mm.
1: Have you ever had a threesome that's also on this list nope. No
2: I one time uh in high school like the two most popular hottest girls i was in like a house party and i went into the parents house and the or the parents master bedroom and went in the bathroom to use the bathroom and the two like hottest girls in our friend group were naked making out in the bathtub and they were like and it get in here and i was so drunk i couldn't get a boner so that was my one threesome chance and it didn't happen (laughs) wait how old were you 17
1: it's a lot going on in this story. (laughs) I'm just stuck on the, I mean, this, that's like, it's like out of a movie, like the two hottest girls were just making out in a bathtub. Is this just something they did?
2: Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think, uh, I think, yeah, I think it was like white girls love to make out when they get drunk. That's like (laughs) a very like white girl situation. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, what is the most you've ever spent on a single item, like car or home excluded?
2: Uh, well, I've only leased expensive cars, like and not that expensive Jettas. Um, what's the most expensive item I've ever bought? It's probably not that expensive. I mean, I, I can't even really, it was probably my car. I, I, I bought an I don't know, actually.
1: Like, do you have any sort of stories of irresponsibility with money? I
2: am $35,000 in debt for credit cards. So that will tell you. (laughs) But I'm I'm paying them off pretty quickly. I'm doing a good job. Good. Yeah.
1: How did that happen?
2: Because I couldn't get a job for two years. Mm -hmm. And also, I was horrible with money, but I couldn't get a job. And so once I started making TV money, and then I did that for two seasons, I was like, so this is life yeah and then i just thought the next job and then it didn't come for a year and i was like used to having keels products <laughs> and going to you know katsuya <laughs> and i was just like it it's any day now i'm gonna get back into the the good money mm-hmm. and i did that for like two years and then i was like oh that's a that's a big number on there right yeah
1: but but now you're paying it down
2: yeah being like a, a worker bee in new york like Doing a lot of different things. I I I do the moving. I restore mid-century furniture and sell that. I uh, do some writing for money, and then occasionally I'll get a job like the one I had this summer for Bleacher Report. Where I get to produce stuff actually, and mm-hmm. then stand up on the road and so, at night.
1: Um, okay, here's my last question. You had mentioned that you had given had either given up on your stand-up dreams or thought you were going to.
2: How dare you? Is that <laughs> no, what you that's said to do? and I did,
1: Oh no, sorry.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I I am no longer doing that segment. Okay. But yes, if I ask one that's too personal, you are supposed to say how dare you. Thank you. I forgot to mention that. Or maybe I didn't. <laughs> um, sorry. Transitioning out of that, and you mentioned that you were giving up on your dreams of stand up or you were considering doing that.
2: Well, I mean, there's a certain point in this career where you have to go like what's what what's like the most logical like what are the tea leaves point because like it's okay to be 25 and dream this Mm -hmm. thing but if you are 35 which i was at the time i was kind of like i can't be 40 and still wonder how i'm gonna pay for health insurance and some people are fine with that by the way and like god bless them for not having but i grew up well and i you know i want to i want to have a little bit of a life you know mm-hmm. i i don't want roommates at 40 you know and i would like to have kids um and nice things i'm kind of a spoiled brat like i, <laughs> I like Eames chairs and things and like Jill's that products yeah and i don't know if that's like what i would give up on comedy for but i i was thinking about transitioning into the, the ad world because mm. it was just seemed like a logical place to be creative but also have a regular job right yeah and but are I, you
1: I, still thinking about that or have you changed your mind
2: uh, n- the new york thing changed everything because i was actually able to find a world where i wasn't I was a comedian, but I wasn't a show business person, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's people out there that are in show business, but I, all of a sudden it was like, all that mattered was, am I going to get up tonight? And am I going to be funny? Right. And I didn't have to worry about like Dane cook, you know, or like (laughs) Instagram models or, you know, being bumped by so-and-so at the store. Um, I still am like a little bit scared, but I just, instead of giving up, I think I'm more like, all right, well, I'm trying to be a TV writer. I would love to act and things. I would love to make my own things. I would love to do gigs that, you know, all over the world. I'd love to do like the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Mm -hmm. But right now, that's not paying my bills. So I have to do these other things and I have to learn how to like generate income. I probably don't want to do this forever. I mean, if I do hit 40 and I still don't have like a semblance of a career, then it's like time to like hit the parachute, you know, pull the parachute, rip cord. All right. do whatever pull, you time want to pull. I think
1: it's time to pull the rip cord. It's time to pull the rip. Cord. And also, yes, do whatever you want. If you want to hit it, if you want to pull it.
2: That's why my parachute never opens. I just don't know. <laughs> I keep on hitting the cord. I'm like, <laughs> I don't understand cords.
1: <laughs> Andy, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank it you. It was so nice getting to know you.
2: Yeah, this was amazing.
1: Are you out here? Uh are you doing meetings or are you performing?
2: I'm doing a little bit of everything. Uh I'm doing touring around LA and not I'm doing La Jolla this weekend and then I'm in Las Vegas next week at the cellar I'm doing a little bit of development meeting stuff and then um mainly just taking a break from New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Nice. Well, tell everyone um where they can go to find more about you.
2: Um I have a website. It's imandihanes.com. It's the conjunction. And then, um, not cause a lot of people could type it, they go, I went to, I am Andy Haynes and it's oh, not Oh, right. Thing. You're saying, yeah, it's I am. Um, uh, and, uh, I've all my media and socials are there and there's a calendar of my live dates and a link to my medium articles and things like that. So
1: yeah, everyone go read those. I thought they were very good. Thank you. And, uh, you can find me on the internet at Allison Rosen. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe download, rate, leave a comment, all those things that you do with a podcast. Also check out my other podcast, Childish, and I have a book out and t-shirts and ringtones, all that
0: is at alisonrosen.com.
1: Tony, where might we find more about you?
0: Uh, Tonythaxton.com and at Tonythaxton on Twitter and Instagram.
1: Perfect. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Alison Rosen
2: show?